Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium, the science and sport podcast. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor James Morton. Science and Sport is the world leading endurance nutrition brand and this is the podcast where we speak to gold medal athletes and globally respected sports scientists to share their insights on training and nutrition. Today, I'm excited to say we're speaking to world record marathon runner Paula Radcliffe, MBE, and Professor Andy Jones, an expert in the physiology of endurance athletes and one of the scientists involved in Nike's Breaking 2 documentary, which followed the journey of three elite athletes attempting a sub-two-hour marathon. If you're in training for a big race or you're looking to improve your time, this episode is an extremely valuable pep talk on training and fueling to smash your PB. Paula has won both the London Marathon and the New York Marathon three times each and by no mean feat held the marathon world record for, believe it or not, 17 years. Paula, thanks so much for joining us. I'm personally very happy that you've come on. You've been a real inspiration to me and so many people over the years and I absolutely love talking about running and marathon running anyway. So thank you. Paula, one of the things I wanted to ask you straight off now is what does running mean to you at the moment? Um, I think at the moment it's a difficult question because running has evolved so much through my life Um, and yet at the same time it's always been my fun time, my enjoyment time and it's kind of evolved into more now so it's almost like a coping mechanism I think for me and I think we've seen that a lot through through this pandemic people have kind of turned to running and found it as a way of coping with all of the uncertainty with everything going on around us. Um, I lost my dad coming up a year ago, so right in the first lockdown. Um, and I think if I hadn't been able to run through the time he was in hospital um, and through everything afterwards, then it, I would have found it so much harder to, to cope with. And then my daughter, when she was sick, um, so she had a childhood cancer at the end of last year, and she's beaten it all now. But again, the same thing. It wasn't like I was trying to train. It was just time to just clear my head, just get a bit of perspective and just think, okay, I can do this. Um, the, the world is all right out here while I'm running, so it'll be all right when I get back. We will get through it. And that it's always been that kind of thinking time. When I was doing my finals at university, I was exhausted. But if I could get out for just a half an hour jog, at least I felt like I was kind of getting through it um, and could put more energy into into the revision and the exams when I got back. So I think it's always been that kind of time for re-energizing. Uh, and now it has no structure whatsoever and no sessions, no plans really other than out the door. How much time have I got? What do I feel like doing today? So it's, it's it, I mean, I never tell my husband where I'm going because I never know where I'm going when I set out and I might change my mind partway through. Uh, and I like that because I think for so many years it was so structured for me that now I like to just be able to to go where I feel and just go on autopilot and explore different trails and it doesn't matter if I have to walk a bit because the path runs out. I can relate to that so much about it just being a way of coping and I think so many listeners will be able to especially right now there's been that real increase in running over this last year and so many people you know have turned to running as a way to cope with the pandemic and lockdown I just want to maybe ask a question about your dad, which I'm very sorry for the loss of your dad, because I know he, that must have been a very difficult time for you, because I know he played a really big part in you getting into running and you running. And I've heard you speak before about how you both used to run together when you were young. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, my dad, I guess, my dad ran at school and then stopped through university. And then when he met my mum and they wanted to have kids, my mum made him give up smoking and he put on weight and then he started running again. Um, and so when I came along, all I can remember is he was getting ready for London marathons, Liverpool Mersey marathons. Um, and we would go along to the forest at the weekend and I would just join in for little bits. I mean, it was probably like half a mile segments while we gave him a drink. Um, and a little snack on his long run. And from there, I really wanted to join the local athletics club. So my dad was the one who went along and researched all of the clubs in the area, found Frodsham Harriers, which is actually where George Bunner was at the time, who started Sports Hall Athletics for Kids because we didn't have a track. We only had a grass track. So in the winter, we were all in the sports hall. So George developed the, the turnaround boards and everything that went with Sports Hall Athletics. And then when we moved to my dad's job down to Bedford area, he was the one who went around and researched all the clubs and found Alec and Rosemary Stanton at Bedford County. Um, and then he and my mum, of course, they supported me all the way through my career, but supporting me, not pushing me. Uh, so they were just taking me wherever I needed to go, coming along. And my dad was always the loudest voice cheering me on. Uh, and I can remember in Boston uh, when I won the World Junior Cross Country in 92, they actually flew out. So I'd gone ahead with the team. They flew out on the Friday night after work, arrived at something like six in the morning, went straight to the course, cheered me on, and then got on the flight home again that night. And my dad was back at work Monday morning. Um, and it's when you think about it, it is just just crazy. Um, the amount of the places they went everywhere. Uh, and my grandma too would come around uh, watching me. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it, it, it's one of those things. I think we're just very grateful for the time that we did have. Me and James have been discussing like your career the other day because it's just incredible. There's so many highlights, but for you, what was what's your highlight or what's your moment that really sticks in your mind? I wonder if it's the same as what we relate to you as. You know, it, it's it is really hard because I mean, of course, the the world records are a huge highlight um, for me. Um, but races when I was a kid that that really kind of gave me that fire and that fun and, and gave me something to believe in, to keep working towards, are also ones that stand out in my mind. So, I mean, everyone laughs about and jokes about the first national cross-country that I did as an under-30. I went to Leicester in 1986 and finished 299th, and there were 605 in the minor girls race that day. And my dad just said to me, you did brilliantly, you are in the first half. And then my coach came up to my mum and said, um, I want to try and get a team together to win the national under 13 title next year. Will Paula come training twice a week instead of once a week? And my mum turned around and said, well, why are you asking me? It's her sport. You have to ask her. And I think the fact that he believed in me, that I could be good enough because I hadn't been anywhere near the scoring team that day, um, really gave me a lot of belief. And the next year I came fourth and I was the second team member of the team when we won the team. Um, so that race for me was a huge, huge thing. And then I think the final marathon in London, personally, was very, very important to me because it was me beating my foot injury um, and being able to do it. So I was able to finish my career on my terms. Uh, and I got an amazing send off that day as well. And something that I'll never f forget, plus the opportunity to run in the mass race of the London Marathon. Uh, and the elite race is very, very special. But the mass race is something on another level in terms of the atmosphere around you and amongst all the crowds and everything. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful I got the chance to to live that because it was one something I'd always said I'd do with my dad at some point. 
but we never actually did it because by the time I was old enough to run marathons, I was too busy racing seriously the, the shorter distances on the track. That's so interesting. I never thought about the difference of an elite running the London Marathon and the masses. I've run London Marathon, I think, seven times now, and obviously it's always been in the masses, but that must be such a different experience. What was it like? It was it was huge. I mean, even just milling around at the start, just the amount of people around, how open it is, that's already a difference. And then when you set off, there are just people all around you um, and kind of looking and checking um, and some people are there for longer. Some people are there in short periods and then drop off. And you, you kind, you do make friends and you, you all go through different patches. And I have to be completely honest. I kind of did straddle the line a little bit in, in order. They did let me have my own refreshments, my own drink stations uh, along the way. Um, but I can remember thinking you know, at one point, one of the guys running with me said that he'd started way too fast and he was really starting to struggle. And I said, well, look, I'm not really going to use my bottles, so I'm going to leave the 35k and the 40k there on the table and you take it when you come through because it might help you get to the finish. So he dropped back and then he, he did come up to me afterwards. He said, I did get there, but someone had already taken it. So I asked the door as I come past, that's it, she doesn't need it anyway. Yeah. Quick, grab bottles, drink it, or make me faster. <laughs> And then, yeah, just being able to, to I think, just see the, the crowds as, as thick as they are because when you're in the elite race, you're just so focused and the, Every time I ran the London Marathon Elite Race, there was kind of only me on the road. And you're in the middle of the road and the crowds are a little bit away. But when you're in the mass race, you have to be close to one side. And it seems like people are trying to see their relatives and friends as well. So the crowds are almost thicker, I think, when you go further back into the mass race um, there than they would have been for the elites. And also you can take it in a little bit more because, to be honest, I didn't really care whether I ran 30 seconds quicker or, or slower, I was really taken in the atmosphere. Whereas in the elite race, I was really focused on the time and just head down and trying to remember some memories, but not in the same way as when it's when you know it's your last one, you really try and, and take it in and appreciate it. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, Charlie, it's, it's great to have Paula on because I've got so much respect for Paula as an athlete, but I also wanted to try and highlight this to the listeners, just how impressive marathon runners really are. I guess when Paula was breaking her world records, you were probably running at 18, 19 kilometers per hour, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I was like, yeah, something like more. that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think in miles. So, yeah, I was, I was 5.13 average in Chicago and I was 5.09 average in London. So I think that must work out something like that, yeah. So I guess here's a little test for the majority of our listeners. The next time you go to the gym and you're on your treadmill, put the treadmill to 18 or 19 kilometers per hour and see how long you can last because you'll probably last seconds or minutes but athletes like Paula are running at that speed for two hours it's it's mind-blowing it's absolutely mind-blowing and um, there was a little thing going around actually where I think it was about Elliot Kipchoge and you had to see how fast you could run in that amount of time and you ended up going like don't know 400 meters around a track and then you'd fall <laughs> away from how fast he was running talking of your world record then um, your world record stood at 2.15.25 and you held that for 16 years and you got the world record in 2003. I actually remember, and I've actually still got the shirt, I've got a t-shirt. Do you remember with your, that Nike did with the number, your world record on the back? And um, I've run in that a few times. <laughs> it makes, makes me feel faster. Um, what, what went right for you? And did you think you could run that fast and you were capable of that? Yeah, um, so I'd always said with with Alec, my coach, we'd always said that 
I wanted to run a marathon and all the physiological testing that I'd always done kind of pointed to the fact that my running economy was very, very strong, that I would run a good marathon. But you never know until you actually do. So we said, right, okay, we're going to, when we run one, we're going to be right, ready to do it then, ready to give it everything. So trained really hard for it in 2002 and then just went into the London Marathon then just with the sole objective of trying to, to win the race not thinking about times whatsoever. I think my halfway split was like high 71s, almost 72s or somewhere, maybe even into the 72s. And I got a gap without thinking about it through Cutty Sark and then just carried on. And I loved that race from start to finish. And I just thought, right now, I've definitely found my event. Had no clue really how much quickly I was running in the second half. I mean, I knew the splits were, were fast, the individual mile splits, but I had no idea what that added up to. And then the last half mile, I saw the clock and I started to think, oh my God, what is the world record? And, and then I think it was 2.18.47 and I turned into the straight and the clock said 2.18. And I was thinking, I've actually got really close to the world record without trying to. So as the minute I crossed the line, I said to my husband, I can get that record and I need to find a fast race that I can do it in in the autumn. So that's when we started talking to Kerry Pinkowski in Chicago and planning towards Chicago. And that summer went really well with the Commonwealth Games and the European uh, record on the track as well. Um, and then a good hard block of training. So I knew I was in better shape than I had been for London going into Chicago. But it was cold and windy in Chicago. And I got my period the morning of the race, which kind of took a little bit away from me, I think. So I mainly was concentrating on winning the race in Chicago because I was racing Catherine Draper, the existing world record holder at the time. So I ran that a lot more smartly in terms of quicker first half, but still negative splits and ran 2.17.18 there. And then in my mind, that was a, um, we were working towards trying to bring the record back to, to London. So I really wanted to go back in 2003 and kind of bring it home to, to the London Marathon and started talking to, to Dave Bedford a lot about it. And again, the training for going into London in 2003 was in exactly the same place as going into London in 2002. We went back to Albuquerque and I was measuring off my tempo runs, my long runs, and I knew I was in better shape. And then I had the accident with the, the kid on the bike. Um, so I was doing one of my last long runs about five weeks out, four or five weeks out and, um, on the bike path along the Rio Grande and I overtook a small child and the mom was further back on her bike. And as I overtook the child, they turned around and they turned the front wheels at the same time, the handlebars. So that took out my back leg. Um, and I just went flying and ended up with a, a whiplash and a dislocated jaw, um, and quite a few bad cuts and bruises. Um, and again, it's kind of like when something's almost taken away from you, you then appreciate it that much more. So it probably forced me to back off a little bit. I was able to have a good period to, to recover from that. Um, and then going into the marathon thinking, thank goodness, I trained really hard. I'm able to, to go and run hard today and really to, to seize everything from that. So I think for me, the most nervous times that day were A, getting up in the morning, opening the curtains and seeing what the weather conditions were like. And then, as always, for every marathon runner, the first couple of miles when you just want to feel okay, because it, it's so hard in warm-up. You never feel good in warm-up, really. Um, and you only really know how things are clicking and coming together on the day in the first couple of miles. So for me to get those out of the way a little bit too quick through the third mile, because I think they had the mile marker placed a little bit wrongly that day. So I 
flew through that in about 4.45, 4.50, I think, and thought, oh, <laughs> put a little, slow down a little bit. And then um, everything else that day just, just clicked into place. And I went through the normal bad patches that you do in a marathon, but nothing more than that and was able to, to come through those. And I don't think that day I could have squeezed any more out. I think I was really putting everything that I had left into those last few miles and there wasn't a huge amount left in the tank. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it was as close to, as possible to a perfect marathon in terms of getting everything that I could out of myself on the day. I always think it's really refreshing to hear somebody who's achieved what you've achieved, you know, out of your mind and body to hear, oh, I went through the normal bad patches. And it, I think sometimes we forget that everybody goes through them. So what do you say to yourself when you go through these bad patches? And do you have a moment when you used to compete when you hit the wall? I honestly ever only really hit the wall once and that was in Athens um, when I genuinely couldn't finish. Um, but I think, and I always try to explain to people, there are two walls. So there's the physiological wall and you hit that, you kind of are in trouble because you've not got anything left in your body. You have no fuel. So unless you're continuing walking, you're not going to be able to, to continue. Um, and then there are the psychological walls and there are several of those. And um, that's the thing that you can really train to to smash through and to, to, to push through. And I think the biggest thing is accepting that in any marathon there is going to be at least one bad patch and there are usually two or three. Um, and actually there will probably have been in training as well. It's just that in training you'll just back off. And sometimes in training if you try and push through those, that might help you then to get the coping mechanisms to to push through in the actual race. Um, and for me it was all about techniques to stay in the moment, in the here and now, to get through those bad patches. So not projecting ahead and worrying about, oh, I've got 10 miles left to go and I feel terrible. There's a blister on my foot. It's rubbing. There's something wrong with my knee and it's hurting me. Um, try and not think of those and try and just think of one foot in front of the other right now. And I used to count. Uh, I used to count up to 100. And it was what I actually used in training as a coping technique. I used to run a lot of 2K reps, but they were really six and a half minute reps out on the road. And so to know where I was, I used to count in my head. And it was roughly three times 100 would be a six and a half minute rep or three to four, sorry, yeah, because three times 100 would be a mile for me. So four in my six and a half minute reps would break it down. And then I used that when it got tough in the marathon because you're only having to think about what number comes next, one foot in front of the other, and you're not worrying about anything else. And then suddenly you think, oh, I feel all right again now. Um, and then you're able to just relax a little bit uh, so it helped with two things. It helped me work out where I was within each mile. And it also just helped me not think about anything else. The reason why I'm laughing is because I, James is laughing, is because I told James this story. <laughs> because it was, because I said, Paul accounts, because I remember reading it somewhere years ago. And then I started doing it when I ran marathons, didn't I, James? <laughs> when I was telling you about it. Um, and I was like, I'm sure she counts to like 100. Because I remember once in a marathon and I was struggling and so I started to count. Another thing I actually did once with a friend, uh, I was running with my best friend, the first marathon I did after being ill, and we dedicated a mile, each mile to a different person that was important to us. So we didn't think of anything else. And then we thought about that person for each mile. So you mentioned about fueling, Paul. I know James is absolutely biting at the bit to talk to you about fueling. So 
James, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take over on that bit. Yeah, no, I think the fueling side is so important for marathon runners because they spend all of this time training weeks and months to build up to their event. And quite often, I often see in my experience that the fueling side is the biggest mistake they make. And yet it's something that they can get right so easily. So I, I wanted to ask, in the build-up to a marathon, like 24, 36 hours out, how did you prepare for it from a nutritional perspective? So how I did it was, for, say for a Sunday marathon, on the Thursday evening, I would start adding one extra carbohydrate drink, the same drink that I would take during the race. So one on Thursday evening. One on Friday morning, mid-morning, um, and one on Friday afternoon, and then the same again on Saturday, and then one Sunday morning as soon as I got up with my breakfast. Um, and that was essentially the only really big change that I made to my diet. But of course, the week before the marathon, you're training less. And so I would also start going back to normal portions that I would have when I was training hard from the Thursday as well. So there probably was a little bit more of a food increase, but not a huge food increase. Um, that it would just be normal sized meals because I kind of didn't want to. I preferred to do it through loading with drinks. Um, and the window is actually quite big. So in the final 24 hours, I don't think you can take that much more into your muscle glycogen. Um, but it's in the 24 to 48 to 72 hours that you can really start topping that up. And then the other thing that kind of helped with the drinks too was the importance of, high, of water, of liquid, of hydration. And I think a lot of people know about the carbohydrate and not a lot of people think about the fact that you actually you need that hydration to keep you hydrated but also to take the carbohydrate into the muscles so the, the two kind of went together and i think that's why i found it just easier um with the drinks to not feel hugely bloated but to feel like i was topping everything up yeah no i, I think that's a great takeaway for the listeners charlie you, you know that i often preach that nutrition is simplicity you, the simpler you can make it the easier it will be and Paula's advice there of, of loading with drinks as opposed to food is great advice for anyone because it does give you less gastrointestinal discomfort. There was a study published back in 2009, if you don't mind me sharing, Charlie. It was in the London Marathon and it was a group of runners and they measured how much carbohydrate they had the day before the race. And those runners that had greater than seven grams per kilogram body mass ran significantly faster than the runners who had less than seven grams. And they also maintained their running speed throughout the marathon much better. And when you look at a lot of recreational runners, they don't get anywhere near that amount the day before the race, despite the fact that they've trained for weeks and months. And it's something as simple as what Paula has said, is of just having two or three extra carbohydrate drinks per day can make so much difference on race day. What about actually during the race, Paula? What's your advice for fueling during a marathon? Because I think that there's a lot of mistakes around there. I mean, I've made tons of mistakes where I don't drink enough. If I'm cold, I once did New York Marathon and I was freezing and I hardly drank and then I had run into all sorts of problems at the end. I felt really, really bad because I was so dehydrated. And then I think sometimes when you just don't feel like it, it's really hard to take the fuel on. It is. And I think that's something personally I always maybe overdid a little bit anyway. Um, I can remember it in um, World Championships, 10,000 metres in Seville in uh, 1999. My husband was, was laughing at me. I mean, I must have drunk about seven litres through the day. And I came off the track and it was, I think we ran about nine o'clock at night. It was about 30, 40 degrees still. I came off the track and I said to them, I need to go to, to doping control straight away because I really need to be. 
And they just looked at me and they went, you can't. It's not possible. You've just run a 30-minute 10K. You can't go straight away. And I walked in there, did my sample and was out there. So I was really overhydrated that day. But what that did show to me, I mean, I probably carried around a little bit extra weight that I needed to do that race. Um, but I was very good at drinking during the race. And I practiced that a lot. Um, and I guess I kind of have silly obsessive things, but the day before the London Marathon, my first marathon, I was running up and down the corridor, practicing picking up drinks. And that was my only training that I did that day was just practicing because I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to get, I'm left-handed and the alternate sides of the road in London. And I was really worried I wouldn't be able to pick it up with my right hand. So I was just practicing and practicing that and practicing drinking and running with it. But of course, James is exactly right. If you start already well hydrated, you don't have to worry about carrying the bottle for too long. And so I didn't have an exact amount that I told myself, you have to drink this at each one. But I just made sure that I drank something at each drink station. So it had also those bottles on the On the Saturday, Sunday morning, I had one of the carbohydrate bottles. So these are 500 ml bottles. And then I would drink another one through warm-up. And then start the race and then I'd have a normal breakfast uh, and everything as well and that's I think on race day always something that I had to kind of force because you don't feel naturally oh yes I'm going to eat tons and tons this morning because you're nervous um but I'd kind of train myself just to force that down so I just had a bowl of porridge made with um, water and some honey and chopped up banana in that and then my obligatory bit of dark chocolate and then I used to have either a cup of coffee or a green tea as well uh, and then my drinking my my drink gradually all the way through that as well and then every 5k we got our drink stations so i had a 500 ml bottle made up and i actually made my concentration stronger through the race too so i would be up the normal recommended concentration of i think it was two scoops for 500 mils at the beginning of the race and then from 25k i would get gradually stronger so i was actually on three and a half scoops by the 40k bottle and i can remember tasting the 40k bottle and thinking oh my god that's disgusting before when you get to it because at 40k i was literally taking three or four mouthfuls but it gave me a, it felt like it gave me a little bit of a, a boost to get through that final 2K. And I always took it even though I didn't think I needed to, because in my mind, that was energy. And so if I was taking that there, that was going to make me run faster over the last two kilometers. Don't know if it did or it didn't, but um, I always took that bottle. And I only had one time, I think it was in the world record, I dropped one of the bottles, um, but I think it was around 15K. And then one time in New York, and when I ran New York Marathon, I think it was the first year, they only give you your elite drink fluids every five miles, not every 5K. And so I got to the five-mile marker and my bottle wasn't there. And I know no one took it because I was the first one there. Um, so it just, for some reason, wasn't where it was supposed to be. So I didn't have my five-mile, which played on my mind a little bit because when you then wait into 10 miles for your first drink, I was really glad that I'd really well hydrated in the first part of the race and also that I wasn't trying to run to max in that race. I wasn't trying to break a record. I was just trying to win the race. Yeah, I must have really thrown you otherwise. James, I was going to ask you, what can we take from Paula for maybe a recreational marathoner or somebody who's going to do their marathon? Because I think this um, is a great time when this is going to go out because a lot of the marathons are going to be October, November time of this year. 
I think London's October the 3rd set at the moment. So people will be in their start of their block of training at the moment. Yeah, I think there's loads of great stuff there, Charlie, that Paul has mentioned. Right up front, she used the word practice. And a lot of mistakes that marathon runners make, especially the recreational runners, is they don't practice their fueling strategy enough. And certainly with seven or eight weeks to go, when you're doing your long runs, maybe on Saturdays or Sundays, they should be your race practice days. So you practice your fueling on the Friday, on the Saturday, and then you run your your longer training race on the Sunday and you really practice that fueling plan so that when you turn up for the race on race day, you've practiced it already and you know that it's going to work. And the fueling plan really should be start consuming carbohydrate from the beginning of the race, like Paula just mentioned. Don't leave it too late. Don't leave it till you've hit the wall because you've already run out of fuel by then. Um, so it's that little and often approach, probably every 15, 20 minutes, feeding carbohydrate and fluid. But practice is key, definitely. And practice at the pace as well. So I didn't just practice in my long runs. I practiced in my tempo runs as well. So I didn't need to refuel during those 10-mile tempo runs. But I was practicing taking a drink every three and a half miles so that that was simulating what I would be doing in the race. So just practicing taking the bottle and getting it down you while you're running at pace. And I think that, yes, more is more tailored towards those people trying to run a faster marathon because the other advice, I guess, for people who are out there for five hours or so, five and a half hours, is actually stop and walk through the drink stations and make sure you're getting it down you because you're more likely to get more into you when you're doing it that way. There's something else Paula mentioned there, Charlie, which I think is really interesting. Is a lot of us think that carbohydrate is all about delivering fuel to the muscles, but Paula mentioned about almost getting a mental pickup. And actually, when you ingest carbohydrate and swill it around your mouth, there's receptors in your mouth which then activate your brain. So even if you don't ingest the carbohydrate, you could spit the carbohydrate back out, but your brain thinks that it's got carbohydrate because it's sensed in the mouth. And then it perceives the exercise is easier. So when you think you're coming up to that physiological wall or the psychological wall, maybe just rinse the carbohydrate in your mouth for a few seconds before you swallow it. And you might start to think the exercise is easier. It's funny because when I ran my challenge six years ago, I ran 250 miles um, for charity and I was having all sorts of problems in my stomach and that's what they did. And they said to me, like, what what, what could you tolerate in your mouth? And it was something like an after eight. And they, I put it on my mouth just to suck it, just to convince my brain that yeah. to give me a little bit of a pickup, even though I wasn't actually ingesting it. I just want to qualify when you're talking, James, you were using the word carbohydrate. We have done um, an episode on carbohydrates. What do you mean in for us to visualize that? Is it drinks like Paul is talking about? Is it gels? Is it bars? Like what? What are we taking in during the marathon? Well, for a marathon runner, unlike uh, cyclists, I would limit it to gels and fluids because solids usually contain a bit too much fiber and can cause some stomach problems during the run. So keep it simple, as Paula mentioned. Um, fluids, if you like that, because it hydrates and fuels you at the same time, or if you have access to gels. But again, going back to that concept of practicing it and training first and working out what works best for you. Paula, I wanted to ask you, how do you get quicker for a marathon? Because I think, yeah, not as simple as that, but there's, if you look online at marathon training programs, they're very, very generic. And you've got different people doing different things. One, to achieve a marathon, I think is incredible for anybody. But then you've got people that, okay, can I, 
you know, can I get a sub four hours or can I get a sub 4.30 or can I like break the 3.30? And I think we look at a marathon and think we just do all this kind of like heavy loading training. So have you got any advice to help increase your marathon pace? Um, well, I think there's, there's several areas within that. There's getting it right pacing on the day and then there's the preparation and the, and the training towards that. It's kind of like the blind, stating the blindingly obvious, but it, it's not rocket science. If you don't train to run at that pace, you're not going to be able to run at that pace on race day. Um, it doesn't mean you've got to run the full distance at that pace all the time in training, but you aim to have some progression in your training and to include the long run, obviously getting longer up to a peak of four or five of your longest runs and then coming back down again. I think a lot of people don't taper enough, don't back off enough in the last three weeks to enable their body to freshen up and to capitalize on that training. Include something in the training faster than race pace and some recovery in there as well. So the recovery can be in a much easier run or it can be replaced with a cross train or a swim or something. And the faster thing can be as simple as hills or a fartlek or it can be actually going on the track or it can be running mile reps on the road. It doesn't really matter so long as you're including something quicker or if you're trying to progress even faster than two quicker than race pace, one tempo, one longer tempo run and one shorter reps one. Um, and then the recovery runs around that. And that's basically it for the training and trying to see some progression in that. If you can race a half marathon or something like that in the build up, then I think that always fits in well. Even if it's just as kind of a psychological break from the training, something to look forward to in the middle, something to give yourself a pat on the back of done well there, now on to the next stage. I think that's important. Um, and then I think the biggest thing is that taper. So three weeks before you should be starting to come down in distance each week. And I kind of aim to come down a third. So if it, at three weeks out, I was at the normal mileage, then I would come down a third and then down a third. And then the week before the race, practically nothing but some runs and strides and things, nothing really hard. So my last really anything you'd call a session would be on the Saturday, Sunday before a week, exactly a week before the race. And it would be something easy, like three minute reps in the park or something like that. And then just focus on fueling, recovering, getting your mind ready for the race and not setting off too fast. That's the, the biggest thing I think. Keeping yourself back without a doubt for me, negative splits is the easiest way to run the race. So aim to get to halfway thinking right now I can pick it up and then don't go crazy and pick it all up then. Pick it up gradually through that second half. But it's definitely um, a much more pleasant way to, to run the marathon because you do get there and you think, okay, that, that felt good now. Now I can start to, to push on a little bit and kind of dig into those reserves over the last four or five miles and really get to that finish line feeling like you're tired, but you had stuff left in the tank over over that final those final few miles. Yeah, so many people run it the other way around and you see yeah. people fly off. I, I've done it, but then I, I really pulled myself back and I've watched people do it and then I've overtaken them later on in the marathon. And it's good to hear you say about doing it the other way around. We've spoken a lot in some of our other episodes about how long it takes to prepare for a race. We had Carl Frampton on talking about how long it takes for him to prepare for a world title fight. How long would it take you to prepare for a race? Would you go into like blocks of training? Because I think there's a the perception that you're always at the top as an elite athlete. Yeah. I think that it's really important to, to build the rest periods in. And um, again, a lot of that came from 
what I grew up with at Bedford and County with Alex. So we would regularly take a month off, a month after the cross-country season and a month after the track season, completely off um, and then get back into it. As I got a bit older, I, I found it easier to take three weeks complete rest and then a week of just Monday, Wednesday, Friday, easy job, just because my body was not liking then jumping straight back into training. Um, but definitely that rest, I think was really important and I always did it after every big marathon. It depended then what I was starting from, what my block would be. So I would often go away for, I guess it would be, I think I had 12, 12, 13 week buildups for the London Marathon when I was going away in Albuquerque and that was off a full rest around about October, November time, and then I'd go away in January. So I'd be ticking over, and then I'd have what I call actually the marathon blocks. And the marathon blocks would not be longer than 12 weeks, and I would also have some intermediate races in there where I'd ease down and come back up. And the one that was different was Chicago in 2002 because I'd got ready for London, then I'd had the month break after that, then I'd got ready for the track season. And so then I raced in Munich in the European Championships and took... I think I only took two weeks complete rest then and then got back into training. And I think I had nine, ten weeks before Chicago. But I was already at a very high level because um, I'd already run 30.01. So I don't, I don't really think I lost that much. It was more just to freshen up and get ready to attack that training that I took that break there. I think 12 weeks is a perfect time, especially if you've got a decent base. But I also wanted to ask Paula, did you incorporate any strength training into your training preparations at all? All the time. Um, so I, even when I was a kid, did a lot of stuff with, with medicine balls and circuits and just kind of body weight stuff and core stability work. And then I started doing weight training. It was when I was on my year abroad, when I was in uh, in the training camp there. So it was 95. Um, and I started doing a bit. And then I actually started working with Max Jones who at the time was the performance manager for British Athletics, um, but obviously was a throws coach. And so he brought his kind of real weights knowledge to to my training. And we learned together for a little bit. So, uh, for example, I can remember it was fine on the track and he could work with me and watch me do the squats and cleans and things like that. And then I can remember when I started my training for the marathon and I was in Albuquerque and I called him. And I said, there's something gone wrong because I can't, I can't clean what I could usually clean. And he said, well, walk me through what you've done in the last couple of days. So I said, well, just did um, two runs yesterday and then I did 24 miles this morning and now I can't clean this afternoon. He's like, Ugh. Yeah, maybe because you ran 24 miles this morning. <laughs> worked out, yeah, okay, we're not going to try and lift after uh, a long run. Um, but it made sense to me because that was a single day. So it was easier to lift. In the evening, but what I usually did was I lifted three times a week. And after that, we kind of worked around trying to put them on the easy days. Um, and then if I had a really quality session the next day, I would lift a little bit lighter that evening. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a growing trend, Charlie, that you see a lot more endurance athletes incorporating strength training into their whole training all year round, actually. And I think in the old days, it was very much endurance first and, and no one went near a weight, but the culture's definitely changing and I think it makes a lot of sense I mean there's kind of this myth that the skinnier you are the better you're going to be for a marathon runner 
but it goes against every science knowledge that we have because you need the muscle to store the glycogen in. And also as you fatigue, your form starts to fall apart. So if you can keep your muscle and your core stronger, your arms stronger, your arms will keep your legs running, even though they're not related at all. The fact that that momentum is moving in the same direction. So the stronger the upper body you have, of course you need a stronger lower body, but the upper body and the, the core, the stronger that is, for me, the stronger you can keep your form together or the better you can keep your form together in the closing stages of the marathon and the more muscles you have just to hold that glycogen in to, to drag that fuel out of in those final few miles. I think it's yes, a really important yeah. point now as well because marathon running has become this thing where it's so popular and so many people do a marathon. And one thing I always say is, you know, we expect, you know, you enter a marathon, never done any running before, and then just go and run a marathon. And you don't actually train your body to be strong enough to run that distance. Would you recommend for a newer marathon runner to do strength training? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I would recommend that you start off with, with kind of body weight, some stuff, things like that, using the medicine balls, using small dumbbells, and then build up to a more specific uh, strength program but I would absolutely recommend it and as a bare minimum I think everybody needs to be doing some kind of core training. Paula I just wanted to pick something up with you you mentioned when you ran Chicago Marathon that you had started your period on that day and we have talked about the role the menstrual cycle plays in sport with Jordan Nobbs on an earlier episode but I wanted to ask your opinion on it especially because mm-hmm. you mentioned it and I have heard you say in previous articles that it made things 100 times worse for you. How did you deal with it? And I suppose then following on from that, do you think sport still has a lot to learn in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think it, that is one of those things. We can look at fueling and we can look at the science of getting sugar and glucose into your body. And that's pretty much uniform. Most people are the same. Um, the thing with the menstrual cycle is that everybody is so individual that I think the, the biggest thing for young girls is, is listening to, to their own body, learning what works for them. Um, I think I was, I was fairly lucky. I didn't have disasters around my, my cycle. I would feel a little bit more sluggish, a little bit more heavy legged, legged. I would retain a little bit more water in the couple of days before. And then I would have slight gastrointestinal upset. Um, when it came on and they were the biggest real things that I, I had, um, with mine. Um, so I think I, I was fairly lucky, but I know people who really couldn't compete well. And then I also saw friends going through it who were prescribed the, the pill that freezes your cycle. Uh, and that is a disaster. And I would advise any female athlete to stay well away from that because all that does is stop you when you're feeling your worst and keep you feeling your worst. Um, so it didn't really help at all. I didn't get on with taking the the contraceptive pill because I felt it seems really weird, but talking to other athletes, I talked to Sonia O'Sullivan about it and I, so I talked to other athletes around the same time. I felt like I wasn't as sharp in my mind, so I, I couldn't push myself as much and I wasn't as aggressive racing when I was taking that, so I didn't like doing it. But what I did do was plan ahead with my cycle and so I would take it in the off-season for two or three weeks to move my period if it was going to fall around a major race. And so that's what I tried to do for Chicago. <laughs> I trained hard and I was late. Um, so it kind of screwed things up around the race because it was meant to come the week before. 
But still, I didn't feel really off. And I was actually relieved when I got it that morning because usually once I've got it, aside from a little bit of stomachache, I'm going to be okay. And I'd far rather race with it than the day before um, for me. But that's just, I think everybody is individual. And I think that it's something just that, that women athletes have to deal with. Um, I do think, and James can maybe help me with this, but I do think that nutritionally there are things that you can do to minimise the effects. So um, as every woman probably knows, reaching for the chocolate might make you feel better psychologically. I'm not sure it actually helps performance-wise if you just pee out um, on that. And I think keeping your body topped up with the carbohydrate levels and well hydrated helped me to manage those heavy leg, not feeling great effects. And also just moving the session. So if it's in training and you know your period's due and you know you feel heavy legged that day, move the, move the session to the next day and just have an easy run and just kind of manage it like that because you're going to get more from the training if you can put more into the training. Yeah, no, that's some great advice there, Paula. We, we had a, a whole episode with that with Jordan Nobbs, as Charlie just mentioned, and, and where we ended actually was the consensus that it should be individualised which you've just mentioned, um, perhaps you need to fuel more or be a, a lot more conscious about your carbohydrate intake during your period, which again, you've just mentioned. So I'm glad to hear a truly world-class athlete qualifying my limited knowledge of the menstrual cycle for performance. <laughs> and the only thing you're stating the blindingly obvious is putting um, extra iron into your body. Yes. Um, as a, as a female athlete, and I think that is something, particularly if I was altitude training or if I was in hard sets of training, then I would regularly take an iron tablet just to keep my, uh, and mix it with a folic acid and a B vitamin B complex. We're going to be talking shortly to Professor Andy Jones, Paula Next, who I know you've worked with in your career. How important was the role of sports science and working with a sports scientist in your career? I think it's important. It's a real balance. And I actually met Andy for the first time in back end of 1991 and I was struggling in training I, do, I wasn't racing well I think I went to to Durham for my first time in the cross country and I finished 40 something in that race and I reached out to Bud Baldaro who was um, kind of looking after the junior cross country team at the time and he had I think he coached Andy or he definitely knew Andy. So he put me in touch with Andy, who was down at Eastbourne University doing his, his degree. And I went down there, jumped on the treadmill with him, um, and he did a lot of tests on me. And that's the point where he said I actually had a really high running economy and VO2 max and everything. Um, but he just did a whole lot of blood tests and just told me I was anemic, which for me was great because what that it gave me a reason for why I wasn't running well and a solution. Um, I went to see a Bedford Hospital, a haematologist, who advised me about the best type of iron tablet to take. So apparently if you have difficulty absorbing iron, it's better to throw a big bomb at it rather than the timed release ones because the timed release ones you'll only absorb a tiny percentage of, whereas a big bomb at least you're going to absorb a small percentage of that, which is a fair amount. So he advised me for the vitamin C, the B-complex and the folic acid at the same time as just the regular first-a-day tablet from Boots. I started taking that. And I think looking back, what I in fact did was simulate altitude training because I was training hard for the World Cross Country. I went down to see Andy before I got on the plane out to Boston. And my coach actually brought his report out with me because we didn't have email then. <laughs> I read it the day before the race and it basically said, you're in amazing form, you're going to smash it, which was the best confidence boost I could get the day before the race. And then everything went really well in the race. So after that, I would go regularly 
to to see Andy a couple of times a year, and we've got all of my data that that kind of correlates everything, even building up towards the marathons. Um, and he predicted fairly fairly closely what I was capable of running over the marathon and the 10k and the 5k as well from that training. So I guess my takeaway would be not to get obsessed with it because it's not a magic wand. It's not going to predict things like that, but it is a great guide and it is a great way of measuring how you're progressing in your training to work with the, those sports scientists. So like we would joke with Andy, science isn't everything and it's not going to predict everything. But combined with the training, I think it, it's it's a very good tool. Uh, and I think the good thing was Andy came and did a lot of measurements in the field as well. So he came out to, to Fontenot and he did some measurements when I was training. I'm trying to think, it may even have been before Chicago or if not, it was before the 301 on the track. But what we noticed was that I can get my heart rate very high, very quickly and hold it. And I think that's something that I trained to do and something that stood me in very good stead in the marathon because intuitively and instinctively, I knew where that fine line was. And that's what you're trying to do in the marathon. Basically, you're trying to go as close as possible to the line without going over it. Because if you go over it, it's game over. You've used all your reserves and you're not going to judge your effort to perfection. But if you can hold it at that close to max, close to threshold, for, and train yourself to do that for as long as possible. That's essentially what we're doing in, in the marathon. Um, so I think that's, that helped from Andy's training that he could actually show me the data and show look when you're running your 2K reps, within a minute of starting, I was at max heart rate and I was holding it for the rest of the six and a half minutes. And then it would come down again in the recovery and I'd be able to do that. So I was, I was training that threshold very very well and i think some people can just find that and some people maybe need the help of sports science to to find that and that's where it comes into its own james do you think sports scientists get a bit obsessed with numbers and forget there's a human athlete behind the numbers yeah absolutely and i think paul has just mentioned that there the sports science in, in my mind is it's there to inform not to dictate and so it shouldn't be some sometimes sports scientists would often try and change the training or reduce the training or whatever but it's it's not there to do that it's there to inform the training program and work with the athlete and quite often we have to get the balance between working with the person as opposed to working with an excel spreadsheet that spits out some numbers and that's what makes the truly great sports scientists separate from the the good sports scientists i think is bringing that humanistic side to their coaching practice paula for sports scientists that are listening and coaches, what advice would you give as an athlete for a sports scientist to see that human side? Um, I mean, I think, as James said, mostly the, the good ones will, will see that anyway. Um, and the good coaches definitely do. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that my coach is very, very strong on, that and he coached a lot of girls at times. There'd be 40, 50 girls in his training group, and he'd go around to his house on a Sunday night and there'd be... 40 or 50 bits of paper spread out on the floor and they'd be all the individual training sessions because you can't give one blanket thing to everybody. Um, and what I could tolerate was different to what Liz Yelling would tolerate um, and he would tailor that to, to match the person. And he knew this and Andy knew this. I could never run looking at my heart rate and I would never listen to it. I would run how I felt <laughs> and then I would tell them how I felt afterwards and they would be able to work out the effort from that. Um, but the one thing that I did learn probably later on 
was the value of an easy run. So Andy would always tell me, you should be doing your easy runs below 160. And I'd be like, you have a laugh. I never do any runs below 160. Um, and then when I started running with my husband and he was helping me train for the, those marathons and for the track seasons, kind of 99, 2000, he was the one who, who really slowed me down on the easy run before the track session. So the night before he would run with me and he would like, make me chat. And I probably was actually for the first time in my life running below the, the 160. And so it, I then realized it. And once I realized it, then it becomes easy to integrate into, into your training. So I think that's the thing. If the sports scientists can assess from, from the athlete, the individual, how they are, because some people want all of that data to run with and some people don't want it. And you have to kind of strike that balance. Um, and I don't think you can know that unless you know the athlete well. Paula, just to finish, there's so much that we've talked about and so much advice you've given. Is there anything that you would advise listeners that we haven't talked about that are training for marathons or specific to marathons? I think um, the importance of a balanced all-round picture is really important for the marathon. And by that, I mean not obsessing about any of the elements, not obsessing about the training, not obsessing about the diet, not obsessing about sleep, but they've all got to be good in moderation. Um, and it, that big picture for me is really important. I mean, when I talk, I talk a lot about the fact that marathons like life and there's going to be ups and downs within that, um, but you're going to get through those and the general picture should be an enjoyable trend all the way through that. And it's the same thing, I think, for the preparation for a good marathon. If everything in the picture is good. So if you're eating a balanced diet, it's, it was really important for me to eat within 20 minutes of finishing exercise, particularly a hard session. Be that a drink, be that a banana, be that a handful of cashew nuts, but something into your body and hydration within 20 minutes and then a meal as soon as possible will enhance your recovery. Um, trying not to obsess about weighing all your meals out and having exactly this, that and that, just everything in moderation. So a glass of wine isn't going to kill you, a bit of chocolate isn't going to kill you, um, but making sure that you get the balance of protein and carbohydrate and essential fats into your diet and making sure that you have a sensible amount of sleep because nobody can function. Well, certainly I can't. I'm somebody who needs sleep to function. Um, and I think most people need that, particularly when you're training at a high level. So if you're sleeping and resting well, hydrating well and eating in a balanced way and doing the training and generally happy, psychologically happy, then that all fits into a good marathon training. And that's, I guess, my biggest advice is the all round picture. So make sure that you're happy with your life, you're eating well, you're sleeping well and you're training well, and then you're going to race well. James, how good was it to have Paula? I'm a massive fan, as you know, because I've um, done about, I think, 15 or 16 marathons now. And watching Paula over her career has just been such an inspiration. But you know what I find really interesting is that she still runs just for her mental health and just to help her get through things, which I've always used running since I was probably about 11 and 12 when I first started to be able to cope with times in my life. Is that something you can relate to, James? Yeah, no, it was it was great, Charlie. I mean, Paula is one of the best marathon runners of all time. So how lucky are we to have had that insight from Paula? But you're right, she right off front, she talked about how she uses running to help her mentally. Um, I think back to some challenging times in my life. Unfortunately, I lost my dad in a car accident when I was 22. 
And then I lost my mum to cancer when I was 29. Um, and that was probably the times in my life when I ran most, actually. I was running all the time because running really did help me during those times. Um, and we're born to run, Charlie. Our bodies have evolved to run. So I don't think it's any surprise that running makes us feel better, even at those times in our life where we're, we're going through our hardest times. I think running always gives you that high, always makes you feel better about yourself. Yeah, and even somebody like her who it's been her career in performance, but she used it to help her through her father and her daughter's illness. And she, it's really great to hear from her in that perspective, because I think we often see her as this incredible performing athlete. It was also really good that she spoke about practicing um, fueling plans and picking up bottles and things like that. I remember when I first did my Ironman, I worked with a coach who told me to walk through the fueling stations and just even if it's just 30 seconds just to walk through to be able to take the fuel on and actually I was quicker when I was doing that rather than trying to run through it and not taking enough fuel on yeah this is this is performance delivery in action this is the real nuts and the bolts of race day nutrition and like we always say Charlie you you have to practice your nutrition the same way that you practice your training you have to practice your nutrition and sometimes that can come down to something as simple as being able to pick up the bottle. I think back to my time at Team Sky, actually, because, of course, the cyclists are riding through 30 kilometres per hour, sometimes faster. And you'll see someone on the side of the road with their hand up, handing the bottles. I remember the first time I did that, I was unbelievably nervous. Mm. I, used to pr- I used to practice in the car park. Get people to <laughs> get people to ride by on their bike and me practicing to make sure I could hand out the, the fueling bottle. Because as Paula just said, if you don't get access to that fuel, it yeah. could be a good chance that your performance suffers. And this is real basics of performance delivery. But it's just so it's so funny because it's the thing I think that so many people get wrong. What would your advice be if anybody's training for a marathon in terms of that? Because I think it's always an afterthought. You know, I've seen people on marathon starts lines that have never taken a gel and they've got them in their um, little pack-ups and they've never taken one, but they've got one on a start line of a marathon. Yeah, my advice would always be pick one day of the week, which is your practice race day fueling, and probably make that either the Saturday or the Sunday run, which is typically most people's longest run of the weekend. And I also wouldn't practice it as just your race day. I would practice it as your race day minus one. So if you're doing it on a Saturday, then on Friday, practice your carbohydrate loading day. And then on the Saturday, then practice your actual race day fueling. And before you know it, you turn up, you've done it so many times, you don't even think about it. Because you you shouldn't have to think about it. It should be the easiest thing to get correct. Yeah, I think we put so much time into actual training, as in going running, but not in terms of the nutrition or the recovery side of things. Well, actually, let's get into everything expert now, James. We're going to speak to Professor Andy Jones. He's a professor of applied physiology at Exeter University, and he's definitely the man to speak to about all things running. Andy, welcome. It's so good to have you on. I know that you're a bit of a keen runner like me. I actually would love to be out running right now with you doing this podcast. <laughs> I think that should be a way that we do it. <laughs> so were you a pretty good runner back in the day then, Andy? Yeah, back in the day, I did used to be uh, pretty good as a sort of youth and as a junior. And I've kind of kept it up, you know, intermittently, I suppose, between other priorities as life has unfolded. Do you hold some records? I'm sure James was telling me that you hold some junior records that have gone on for a while. 
Yeah, back back in uh, 1987, when I, I was running on the track, you know, 1500, 3K, 5K, but I, I did venture onto the roads a couple of times. And when I was, so 1987, I was 16, 17, and I ran 30-13 for 10K and 66-55 for the half marathon, which were then um, British sort of age age records, and I believe um, still stand. So there'll be, you know, a 34-year anniversary this year, which I'm pretty happy about, yeah. Congratulations, that is fast as well. We just heard from Paula, Andy, and it was fascinating talking to her. And I know you did some early testing sessions with her. What are your early memories of her as an athlete? And did you could you see her potential back then? Absolutely, yeah. So I think you started working with Paula back in 1990 or 1991. So she was, you know, just a promising junior um, back then, and. While she'd she'd won the English schools cross country by almost a you know almost a proverbial mile, and uh, but she she'd hit a few problems and the junior event coach at that time knew my coach and knew I was studying for my PhD in exercise physiology, and uh, thought it might be a good idea for her to come and have an evaluation and see you know what was perhaps not quite right with her at that time, and actually she did a really good treadmill test but we did identify that she had uh, low hemoglobin levels and suggested that she get that fixed which she did and um you know then she won the the world junior cross-country championships which put her on the map really so that and the rest is history as they say but no she she was fantastic right from the from the get-go she had extraordinary potential that you could you could see straight away and she was able to really push herself incredibly hard on the treadmill um so i think that those initial experiences were were pretty um convincing for her. and we continued to sort of work together for probably around 10 years right up until the um you know once she set the world record in london and and beyond and the more we worked together the the more i understood her physiology the more the measurements that we were making became really accurate and we could predict with quite astonishing precision <laughs> how fast she'd be able to go especially over longer distances low hemoglobin what what was that around and what do you do? Yeah, sort of iron deficiency anemia really is, is another word for it, really. And, and, you know, it's quite a common issue in endurance athletes and runners in particular and, and female runners in particular. So monitoring that carefully and ensuring that you get enough iron in your diet in the first place. Um, it's, sometimes it needs medical attention as well. And, you know, GPs and so on can administer iron injections if things get really low. So the thing that's most sensitive is something called serum ferritin, which is a kind of indicator of your body iron stores. And, uh, yeah, in Paula, it was it was pretty low at that time. And, and it got low at other times as well in her career. She just had to keep uh, keep tabs on it. Yeah, I was just going to say, Charlie, I thought Andy made a great point for the sports scientists who are listening because he talked about the importance of regular testing. And the more testing that you do, the more you get to know your athlete. And I think quite often in sports science, we we make bold claims from from a single test. But of course, it doesn't happen like that. The more the more regularly that we can test our athletes, the better data that we get, the better decisions we can make, and the better we understand our athletes. So I think that's a really important point that Andy's just made. Andy, I just want to pick up on something you said. You said Paula can push herself on the treadmill she could really push herself was that to do with her physiology or her mindset or both I think well a bit of both but you know she she did have and does incredible physiology but she was she's got a reputation for being able to push herself really hard as well and it's a double-edged sword because you push too hard in training all the time and you know you can you can end up injured if you've done hundreds of vo2 max and 
you know tests with runners on the treadmill you kind of can watch them and you know pretty much when they when they when they're done and you start to make your final set of measurements but with Paula you know we we do these hand because they're breathing through a mouthpiece so you do some hand gestures and you ask them to tell you when they think they've got one minute left so you can make sure that you capture those those final maximal values and Paula you know I'd be thinking she's only got one minute left and eventually she'd say she'd got one minute left but she'd get through that minute and then try for another minute and you know, you'd have to scrape her off the treadmill in the end. She just didn't want to stop. So, you know, when she was uh, a world record holder, um, that became kind of scary when she's running at 21, 22 kilometers per hour on the treadmill. And, you know, she's clearly really fatigued and her form's starting to fail. And you're thinking, please don't come off the treadmill. Not when you've got a big race next week, you know. So, uh, you know, she, she was she's very tough as, as well as, you know, physically awesome. We want to kind of explore what makes a good marathon runner. I think that's a really great way to start. And I think I'm going to kind of leave this to both of you a little bit, but you did mention VO2 max. And so I want to talk a bit about VO2 max, lactate threshold and running economy. So can you describe what these terms mean? And then James, you jump in as well. Yeah. So, well, VO2 max is the maximal rate at which you can consume oxygen. So you take it from the air that you breathe, you transport it to your muscles via obviously your cardiovascular system, and then your muscles have to use that oxygen to produce energy. So the highest rate that w- at which you can take that oxygen in and use it, that's your VO2 max. Um, it's, it's really important for middle distance runners, especially sort of 1500 to, to 5k, because they're exercising at an you know, around and slightly above their, their VO2 max. So the higher that value is, the better. If you're a marathon runner, then you're obviously operating somewhat submaximal. You might be going at 85, 90% of your VO2 max, maybe something like that. So VO2 max per se is a little bit less relevant, but clearly the higher that is, the more room you have to operate at, a, at an oxygen uptake that's still at a high absolute level. So that takes us to um, something called lactate threshold. What we find with um, marathon runners is that they operate just below their so-called lactate threshold, the lactate threshold being the speed at which lactate in your blood starts to accumulate pretty rapidly, but that is a reflection of what's happening with, within your muscles as well. So pH in your muscles is going down, so they're becoming more acidic. All, all, lots of other sort of metabolic um, changes are occurring and certain substrates are being utilised more rapidly, certain things are accumulating more rapidly, all of which tend to be related to the fatigue process. So, um, so we monitor lactate in the blood to give us an indication of what uh, speed might be sustainable for long periods and which speeds aren't sustainable because you fatigue much more rapidly. So there's that. And clearly, if you're a marathon runner, the higher that speed is at your lactate threshold, the higher the speed you'll be able to operate in your marathon. Um, and then finally, it's, it's running economy. Now, when we all run at, say, a, the same speed, some of us need more, actually use more energy and consume more oxygen than others. And we find that marathon runners are particularly economical. So when they're running at a particular speed, they're not actually requiring as much oxygen as, the, as an average person. I mean, what you need to be a great marathon runner is a combination of, of great values for all three of those. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter, you know, if you look at each one of them individually, they may not necessarily correlate with performance because one relatively weak value for one can be compensated for a very strong value for another. And such like, but really, you need all three together. And Paula was one of those incredible athletes that was blessed to have all three simultaneously. But she was especially economical. Um, I think probably the most economical runner that's ever been measured. How can you improve that then? Uh, well, her running economy did improve over quite a long period of time. So, right when we first started working in, you know, as I say, 1990, 1991, 
Um, back then, her running economy was fairly average, but she was only doing 20 or 30 miles per week then. She was only 18 years old. And the thing that improves is, you know, if you do the same thing repetitively over many, many years, you know, you train basically every day for 10 or 15 years, then your body finds a way to cheat, if, if you like. You know, you your running economy, your, your technique becomes just much more biomechanically efficient. You iron out any things that are causing you additional strain, really. So your body's very plastic like that. And, and over time, you know, you just get fitter, you introduce altitude training, you you do um, strength training, strength conditioning work, that kind of thing. All of that helps a bit, but it's mainly the consistency of training and the smoothing out of your biomechanics. Your, um, your type 1 muscle fibers are really efficient as well. You can give your type 2 fibers, which fast switch fibers which are typically a little bit less efficient um, you make them more oxidative so they become less fatigable as well it's a variety of things in combination but the crucial thing is just to stick at it over a very long period Andy is it fair to say that in the elite population they they build up that training history and that improves their running economy but in the in the amateur population or people who are running their first marathon improving their vo2 max would actually have a measurable performance effect on their ability to run the marathon in the first place yeah it would yeah so if you're um, just a, a regular runner improving any one of those three things would absolutely help because basically all of those three digits for the for running economy vo2 max and lactate threshold can go into an equation and they predict the speed that you're able to sustain for a given distance so if, if any one of those improves provided that the other two don't deteriorate then you're going to get better so and really when you're when you haven't been running for very long more or less all three of those things are really quite plastic. They'll all change quite quickly. Um, it's when you've, you know, it's when you're an elite athlete and you're already 99% of the way there, then finding the, the tricks that in training that enable you to improve one of them a little bit further or to prevent the decline with time, you know, that becomes the crucial thing. So if we look at a regular runner then, how do you improve that? I was just thinking, would that include something like interval training? I always do a lot of interval training when I'm doing a marathon race or a triathlon race that's over a long distance. And I always find that whenever I include interval training, that my times improve over a marathon or a longer distance. Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of, of stuff, isn't it? It's, um, you know, the things that constitute a training program are duration and intensity and frequency. So if you change one of those... So you do a bit more or you do the same thing a little bit faster or you do, you know, rather than do three five-mile runs a week, you do four or five. Any one of those things um, should actually give you a greater overall sort of training training load, bigger volume, bigger intensity, which which should stimulate some adaptations. Um, and as I say, if you if you haven't done much running at all to begin with and you just start doing something, your, your general aerobic fitness will improve and that can be measured in your VO2 max and your lactate threshold. And the more running you do, the more economical you'll become. So there's a lot of gains to be made quite early on in a training program if you've not done much previously. Yeah, it, it's quite interesting, Charlie, as well, in relation to VO2 max, because when you look at a lot of football players or soccer players for our US listeners, it's obviously not as high as the endurance athlete. But around 20 years ago, football training changed um, and professional players started like playing small-sided games and training at a certain intensity for four minutes on and a couple of minutes recovery, which is very similar to an interval training program that runners would do. And of course, all of the football players' VO2 max then improved and their fitness improved. And so I guess the concept really is that if you want to try and improve your VO2 max specifically, 
It's really about three to four minute intervals, Andy, isn't it? Like fairly high intensity. Yeah, and for a runner, it's you know a, a very typical session is something like five times one thousand meters, pretty hard with one to two minutes in between. So it's exactly that kind of thing. But yeah, you could make it four times four minutes. But basically, what you're trying to do is accrue as many many minutes as possible at close to your maximal heart rate and as close to your your maximal VO2, and that seems to be the stimulus to to enable you to improve. But there's other, there's other ways to do it. You could do it in a single continuous run. It's just that you wouldn't have many minutes you know, at that, that crucial intensity. So breaking it up, having a little recovery and then repeating the interval training concept is um, is useful there. But, I mean, you could do something like 20 times a minute with short recoveries. And over time, you know, by the time you get to the 12th or 13th, you're, you're probably at your VO2 max and you just hang on for the remainder of the time. So I'm writing this down. So 20 times one minute. Yeah. And how much rest would you have in between them? Uh, that, that's, well, a typical session, again, for a runner would be something like 16 to 20 times one minute with one minute recovery. Um, or, or something like five to six times three minutes, like we discussed. But the, yeah, they're, they're quite standard sessions that most runners will be uh, familiar with. In terms of if you're more of an elite runner or maybe an amateur, very good runner, what are the tricks that you can do then? Well, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think there is anything magical about it, really. It is consistency. It's, it's making sure that you um, you train as hard as you're able without breaking down, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And um, and that's and that takes a lot of mental strength as, as well as sort of physical prowess. But it, it's just it really is the consistency. And as as you get a little bit fitter, of course, your body can take a little bit more. So you can start to increase the volume of the training that you do. You might start to run a few more miles per week. You might find that each of you for the same effort when you're doing your you know 16 or 20 by a minute or your five times three minutes, you should be able to go a little bit quicker during each of those reps. And those two things together, as long as you, you know, maintain that same effort and that same ambition, um, you should be able to keep sort of eking up the stimulus and your body should respond to that. Talking of speed then, I'm I'm so, I'm looking forward to asking you about this because it's something that I've really enjoyed watching and being fascinated in myself because you were part of the Breaking Two Hour Marathon project. You were one of the experts with the Nike one where Elliot Kipchoge ran two hours, 23 seconds, and then he went on to break the two-hour mark on the second attempt, uh, which was with Ineos. I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about what it was like from the inside that we didn't see. And did you always believe it was possible? Uh, yeah, so it was two hours, 25 seconds he did. So the photo that you've probably seen, that does have 23, but it was rounded up to 25. two hours and 25 I, seconds. I gave yeah. him two seconds off. <laughs> I know, uh, uh, 25 seconds off as it turned out. Now, it was it was a fantastic opportunity, one of the most exciting things I've ever been uh, been part of. Yeah, I always believed it was possible, no question. Yeah, at, the, at the time we started on Breaking 2, the world record was 202.57, but there were so many factors which explained why that, performance I just felt it could could have been a lot faster and part of the reason is that marathon runners don't get many opportunities to run marathons when they're in their peak form you can only really do two per year whereas if you're a 100 meter sprinter or even a 1500 meter runner you can run multiple times in a season and the likelihood of you getting perfect conditions and being in you know just having a dream day is so much more likely and then also the courses that the top athletes marathon athletes run on aren't necessarily very fast and the environmental conditions aren't necessarily conducive or they you know, it's not a competitive race because somebody's chosen to run in Boston, another one in Chicago, another one in London. Or when they race 
you, know, you get all the top guys together in the Olympics, then the idea is to win, not to run as quickly as possible. So I always felt that 202.57 was a real underestimation of what an athlete in their prime could, could do. Um, so with Breaking 2 and subsequently Ineos, it was just simply a, a question of let's make the focus running as quickly as possible and let's give the athletes every opportunity to do that. So choose a, a course that's fast and flat. Do it at the time of year where the environmental conditions should be um, should facilitate or be conducive to a good performance. Get the best athletes in their best shape. And then do the other, you know, make sure they can draft. I mean, if you're the best marathon runner in a, in a race, you might find yourself on your own for the last half of it. And we know that when you're running on your own, you experience air resistance. So it's much more beneficial for you. You can reduce your oxygen costs. In other words, sort of artificially improve your running economy if you run behind other people. So the other thing that we did um, in Breaking 2 that was replicated but in the INEOS 159 was just make sure there was a rotating team of pacemakers. So, you know, the principal athletes didn't need to worry that they were going at the right speed. They could tuck in and, and benefit from the advantages of drafting, which... You know, if, you, if you'd had all the best runners in the same race and they were of a similar caliber, they could actually be working off one another up to 25 or 26 miles. And so we just tried to create that same situation. I don't, I don't think it was particularly unrealistic. And then, of course, the other thing was things like um, making sure they were fed and watered appropriately. You had to test and recruit these runners. So what were you looking for and how much does natural talent play a part in that? Well, a lot, but I mean, we were looking for all the things that we discussed earlier in in the conversation. So, VO two max, running economy, and lactate threshold. We just put them through, um, you know, a multi stage treadmill test, um, starting at about sixteen kilometers per hour and ending as at whatever speed they couldn't um, continue at. So, typically, it was. 22, 23 kilometers per hour. You measure oxygen uptake, you measure heart rate, you measure lactate, and you can get those three parameters that we discussed earlier. And it's it's the combination of those three that allow you to predict whether that guy is capable of breaking two hours. So um, so we went with the, there were three that we selected in the end, as uh, as you know, Elliot Kipchoge, Susan Tedesse, and Lalisa de Cisa. And they were all fantastic in their own way. But I mean, in addition to the treadmill test, we ran them outdoors at 21.1 kilometers per hour around a track. And we measured oxygen uptake in the field, which was the first time that had been been done, because you'd need to demonstrate that when they're running at four minutes and 34 seconds per mile, that they're actually comfortable at that speed and, and actually able to sustain a, a steady state, which they were. So that, that was important. But we also took into account their pedigree and their previous history and whether they had further potential. There was a whole bunch of factors. And, and also, were they excited about being part of this project? Did they want to be the history maker? And, you know, that was uh, certainly um, front and centre in our thinking as well. It was a, so it's a combination of physiological, psychological, sociological factors, really. Do you reckon, how much faster do you reckon a human can go for a marathon? Uh, well, I think now Elliot's done it. I think it kind of, it does, it does change the mindset if you've if you're someone who has the capabilities of running a world record for the marathon i think human nature is that you think well the world record currently is is x i might be able to go a few seconds faster than that so people were thinking oh maybe i could run low 202s or 201s and ellie has just blown that out of the water now so i think people will it's like it is like the roger bannister effect with the four minute mile but everybody thought that was impossible until he did it and then within a few months lots of other people were doing the same so i think it'll go faster still and I think we'll see sub two in a sort of regular race, London or Berlin or something before very long. I would I would say within 10 years, we'll see that. Um, just how, how absolutely fast, 
Veronica and Gary, is quite difficult to say. I guess if I think Rod, um, Mike Joyner's original paper on this suggested something like 157. If you had an athlete that had a VO2 max of something like 85 or 90 and who was able to su sustain maybe 90% of that for two hours and had a running economy of 180 mils per kilogram per, per kilometer, that gives you something like one hour and 57 minutes. The trouble is that all, you know, th those numbers aren't necessarily um, compatible with one another. So if you've got a really high VO2 max, you might not necessarily also simultaneously have incredible running economy and vice versa. So so that that may be impossible to do 157, but of course that was before um, we we knew more about drafting, we knew more about nutrition, and we knew and we had new new running shoes, for example. That's that's taken a little bit of time off world records presently. Yeah, you just mentioned nutrition there. So what is there any tips and tricks that our listeners can take from the elites when it comes to nutrition and fueling for a marathon? I don't think there are tips from from the elites necessarily. I think everybody, you know, the the information is out there for everybody to benefit from, but it really is about carbohydrate ingestion, making sure you've got full glycogen stores on the start line, and that you do whatever you can to top up your, uh, you know, carbohydrate availability during the run itself. So availing yourself of chances to take carbohydrate on board either via drinks or via gels, um, and and of course hydration as well. It depends a little bit on how what your sweat rate is and what the environmental conditions are you're going to lose some body mass because you'll be sweating um, over the course of the two to three hours or four hours or whatever it is you're going to be running for so replacing at least some portion of that is important and getting the balance between the amount of hydration and the the carbohydrate ingestion is is quite important but i think everybody buys into that not everybody um necessarily um delivers on it and that, that we certainly had to work on with the athletes that that we selected for breaking two, there was a bit of knowledge about it, but they didn't quite grasp how important it was. And, you know, when you're running that fast and you're trying to consume food or drink, it's really hard. You're ventilating, you know, you're breathing at a really high rate. Everything's moving. Your gut is moving. Your arms and legs are moving. And it's a real skill to be able to pick up a bottle and drink or, or eat while you're running. It's different, I think, if you're a cyclist, as James will no doubt attest, because your upper body is stationary. Still not necessarily straightforward, but when you've got high metabolic rate, high ventilatory rate, and lots of moving parts when you're running. It's, it's something that you really do have to practice. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Andy. Um, marathon runners and runners in general, I'm sure you would agree, are notorious for underfueling when compared to guidelines and other sports. But even at the amateur level, I, I remember a few years ago, Jamie Pugh, one of our postdoctoral researchers in Liverpool, we did a study on the Dublin Marathon and the Liverpool Marathon. So this is just amateur runners, Charlie, and the average carbohydrate intake was less than 30 grams per hour, where, of course, those guys, they're, they're running four-hour marathons, so they should be up between 60 and 90 grams per hour. And sometimes it's not lack of knowledge. Sometimes it is just lack of delivery, as, as Andy said, and, and lack of practicing. And if we, if we go back to Paula, actually, she really called it out, the importance of practicing fueling and training in order to get it right on race day. Just before we finish, Andy, you've worked with so many different athletes and we've talked a little bit about mindset and this is something I'm fascinated in because, you know, we're talking a lot about physiology, but I think, you know, that's one that thing that marks Paula as well as the, her ability mentally. Is there anything that you've learned that you can pass on to us in terms of mindset for marathon running that you've noticed yourself or from elites? I think the ability to switch off more than anything, to deal with the potential boredom of it. Certainly. So 
I used to run more, you know, shorter distances, and it's only in the recent years I've started to do marathons. And the training that you have to do for it, where you're running for two, three hours, and then the marathon itself, that's quite a long time to be on your feet for. And for most of it, it's kind of, it is quite submaximal. You're not working very hard. You're not breathing very hard. So being patient is really important, not pushing too far too soon, somehow disconnecting your brain, you know, occupying your, your brain to ward off the boredom seems to be the thing. And I think the elite athletes have um, have the ability to do that, just to not engage too soon. So they save up that. And it's in training as well. So they don't train too hard. You know, they, they can save all of that energy and all that focus for the race. But even within the race, they can save that particular um, focus until when it's absolutely needed. Again, it's the consistency. If you, people like Paula and Elliot were, no, were incredibly talented juniors, but they wouldn't have achieved what they did in terms of setting you know, world records um, and winning world championships and such like had they not been capable of training for as long as they had. So remaining interested, trying to be injury free as far as you can, um, playing the long game. It's that kind of thing. You're not going to get, I mean, you, you can improve really quickly with running. It's one of those things. But to get the absolute ultimate out of yourself, you need to train for a very long time and you have to completely commit to it. And what I really admire, we, we spoke about Elliot and his training camp and Paula was the same. You know, they're, they're very humble and they used to lock themselves away. Um, no kind of trap ends. It's just train, eat, sleep, repeat, not just for week after week, but for many, many years. And if you've got the mental resilience to do that, then you deserve all the plaudits that you eventually receive. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, James, I know to finish up, you wanted to talk about being older, I suppose, and you said about that consistency of years and years. Um, is there anything around age and anybody that wants to run a marathon? Is it possible at any age? The reason why I wanted to talk about that, actually, is quite often we look at all of these runners on the TV and we think, oh, we could never do that. We could never run those distances. But as Andy mentioned, running is one of those things that no matter how old you are, you can get better at it. And if you take it up in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you will get better at it just because of how adaptable our bodies are. Our, our bodies are true machines that can adapt to what you tell it to do. So I wonder, Andy, if you can try and encourage our listeners who maybe have never ran before and, and inspire them to put their running shoes on today and go out. It's nice and sunny where I am in Liverpool today. So this is a perfect day for running. It is. It's nice here in Exmouth as well. Um, yeah, you, you absolutely can. I couldn't have said it better myself, really, James, that no human is limited is, is Elliot's slogan, isn't it? I mean, I don't necessarily subscribe to that as a physiologist because my job is to determine what those limits are. And everybody does have their limits, but they're usually a bit further further afield than most people will um, allow themselves. And, and you just don't know where your journey is going to end until you start it. So get your shoes on and set, you know, little goals to begin with and build them up with time. And it is absolutely the case that in distance running, there are some incredible performances by people in the, certainly in their 30s, even at the elite level, even late 30s, even early 40s. And there are people in their 50s, you know, just in the local park run who are running astonishing times. And it's partly because... You know, as you get a bit older, your VO2 max inevitably declines a little bit because your maximal heart rate goes down. But you can compensate for that by being really economical. 
And actually, older people do tend to be a bit more economical. And the more running you do, the more economical you get. So um, you can absolutely compensate for the loss of one aspect of your physiology by massively improving some others. So it's a, it's a good sport, I think, if you uh, if you want to kind of keep fit into um, into older, even older age. James, so much useful stuff there. I think this has been like a bumper episode for runners and and marathon runners or for anybody that actually wants to get into it. I love the fact that he was talking about running when you're older because I hear so many times people go, oh no, I don't run anymore on my knees. And they're like the same age as me. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, Charlie, our bodies have evolved to run. We're born runners. And Andy again highlighted that all of us can run at any stage in our life. It doesn't cost you much. You don't need a fancy bike. Put your shoes on, get your trainers on and out you go for running. And I'm pretty sure you'll get fit very quickly and you'll feel a lot better about yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, And he was talking about interval training as well. And it's something that I've really incorporated into my running. And I was saying that I definitely notice an improvement when I do interval training, but it's also, you know, when you just can't be bothered to go training. I mean, I love running. I actually like could sleep with my trainers if I if I could. Like I take my trainers everywhere. That's how much I love running. And sometimes I just can't be bothered to go. But when I go and do an interval session, it really helps because it occupies my mind and it makes me focused on that rather than the fact that I'm tired or my legs can't be bothered. Yeah, that, that was a great um, episode for you, Charlie, because you got some free training advice there. So Andy recommended an interval session for you. I'm looking forward to hear how you got on. Yeah, well, I've already done it 20 times now. <laughs> Actually, you've just reminded me of a study that we published back in 2011. Um, we, we got a group of runners to perform a steady state continuous training session or a high intensity interval training session. Both sessions covered the same distance. They were matched for the same average intensity. They were matched for calories expended. When everyone got off the treadmill, we gave them a questionnaire to ask them how much did you enjoy the exercise? And interestingly, everyone enjoyed the interval session a lot more, even though physiologically it had done exactly the same to the body. But everyone said they much preferred the interval session. It was more enjoyable and it just got them through the session so much more. And, and enjoyability is key, isn't it? Yeah, I think it depends what you Sometimes I just like to go for a run because I need to clear my head. But if I'm training for something, I think it really helps. It definitely helps in terms of my times. And uh, talk about free training advice. I'm the master at interval sessions. I've got more written down. I've got some ones here. The one I was talking about was, um, are you ready? I'm going to give some interval sessions out. Um, you're writing this down, James. Yes, yeah, I've, got one, I've actually got <laughs> my pen in my golf. Never mind that golf and you need to get interval session training. Um, the one I was actually talking about was 40 seconds times 20. And that's what I was doing in lockdown. Where you, and then you jog 60 seconds in between. And then it got ridiculous with me and my friend because we got so competitive that we were trying to do, see how many 40 seconds we could do. And the 40 seconds is full out. And so we started at 20 and then I think we went to about 36 until we then called it a day because it was getting ridiculous. And then the other one that I really like doing as well is um, eight minute. you do eight minutes times two, six minutes times two, four minutes times two, 90 seconds times two, 30 seconds times two and have two minutes rest in between. And I like it because that it's, it's hard because they're quite long, but then you go down. Um, so then, but that last 30 seconds you just feel so amazing because 
the top one was like an eight minute interval session. So I love intervals. I could talk all day about it, but we probably should wrap the episode. Is there anything more, James, that you would like to take out of that? No, I was just going to say, I hope you fueled those interval sessions correctly, Charlie. Um, yes. <laughs> Actually, how should we best uh, fuel them then? Well, you should know by now, you should go into those sessions with plenty of glycogen available so that you can run to your best every rep every repetition <laughs> yeah i i'm actually getting better at fueling since we've been doing this podcast luckily i'm actually taking some of it on board <laughs> thanks Good. so much james it's been brilliant i really enjoyed this one Thanks for joining us for this episode. Hope you've enjoyed it too. And good luck with your training if you're preparing for the London Marathon in October or any other marathon. And hopefully they'll all be going ahead and that there was a lot of value in this podcast to help you. Make sure to check out Science and Sport across socials at Science and Sport while you're waiting for the next episode. And please do leave a review because we'd love to hear from you. Thank you.